More Human. More Human. More Human. Live from the University of San Diego. Uh, to begin here, I'd like to acknowledge up front that my story revolves around one of the most highly contentious topics of the, well, last 2021 years. That is, it deals with matters of faith, particularly Christianity, and my own journey with it. However, it is merely a part to the whole of humanity, at that, a 21-year-old part to the whole. I do not intend to make claims about the reality or unreality of religion. Rather, I only wish to share my own experience with it, an experience that may or may not contribute to yours. I am not prescribing moral advice and instead may be striving to draw us out of our own moral convictions, to look at them critically and question how certain we can be of what is uncertain. I have no intention of telling you what to do when you leave this place of uncertainty, but merely wish to bring you along to it, if you'll allow me. This journey begins in Colorado Springs, Colorado, the place of my birth. About an hour south of Denver, my family lived on a few acres within the Black Forest, a forest that doesn't actually refer to a forest, but an unincorporated area. Though at the age of seven, it seemed about as real as any forest. Its arcing pine trees were tall enough to block the view in any given direction, providing a sense of seclusion, but slender enough to grant the passage of an adolescent. Many of my childhood afternoons were spent delving into these woods, venturing out in a different direction until I reached an area that had hitherto been unexplored. It was here, in this place, that I made a home. It was in the unknown that I found a love for getting lost. At the age of eight, following a job offer in the Pacific Northwest, my family decided to up and out and head to the state of Washington. I still remember us pulling out of our driveway for the last time in our old Chevrolet Tahoe, the sky glistening blue as twilight descended, the kind of blue that you only ever find mile high. My family's westward expansion landed us in the suburbs outside of Seattle, quite the shift from the black forest of Colorado Springs. The mountains were still a drive away. The ones closest to us culminated at a mere 4,000 feet, and it would take some time for me to acquaint myself with them. But, however, gradually, I began to reintroduce myself to the outdoors, though this version was very different from the one I'd known in Colorado. Instead of evenly distributed pines with nothing but needles on the ground between, the forest floors of Washington were matted down with overgrowth, making for a landscape that even the now 17-year-old struggled to navigate. The forest of Washington came to reflect the discord of my own coming of age, my parents having filed for a divorce and myself drifting from what friends I'd had. With no sky in sight, the forest canopy bearing down upon me, I started to question if there was a way out. Trampling through this kind of growth, it's no wonder that I found the desert floor of Southern California so appealing. I still remember the first time I glimpsed Californian desert. It was during my freshman year of college when I began to venture east from San Diego. It wasn't until March of that year, though, that I crested the last ridgeline of the peninsular mountain ranges to see the desert expand before me. I was ecstatic, for there was no getting lost here, where the only thing limiting your sightline was the curvature of the earth. It was as though, through my time in Washington, I'd lost myself out of a desire to be lost. I'd always been inclined to ask questions, but I was tired of waiting for their answers. The same disposition that Colorado had so carefully cultivated in me, the propensity towards uncertainty, was gone. Hence, my turning to the clarity provided by the desert and religion. When talking to a classmate about what it was I found so captivating about the desert, I explained there's something so beautiful in the desolation, 
When there's nothing, we're reminded that there is still something. When we hit rock bottom, the only way to turn is up. And so I did. From the unobstructed view of the desert floor, I turned to the sky to put my faith in the man above. Within my first week at USD, I'd been brought to mass by a friend, but it wasn't until the start of my sophomore year that I really committed to the Catholic faith. I found the intellectual tradition of the faith fascinating, and the conversations I had with my roommates reflected this, helping us both grow in our understanding of our faith. I think the thing that both of us failed to realize, though, was that no matter how much you try to rationalize a faith, you can't reason your way into believing anything. We are not rational creatures, but emotional ones. As such, my first crisis of faith was heavily intuition-based. I didn't know why I felt the way I did, but I knew that I felt a way. And it wasn't good. Having been drawn to philosophy through my stint with faith, I found myself in an ethics course by the spring semester of my sophomore year. It was in this course that I was first exposed to the work of Friedrich Nietzsche. I, I laugh because Nietzsche is one of the most infamous critics of religion, and I think it's probably a cliche to say that he turned me into an atheist. And it was just a matter of time until what that truly meant would set in. As I headed back home to Washington at the onset of the pandemic, I was right back in the thick of the brush, both physically in space as I returned to the outdoors of the Pacific Northwest and intellectually, no sky nor heaven above to inspire the answers to my questions. In fact, it seemed that shut off as I was from this light, I no longer even needed to ask questions. I had it all figured out and the answer was that there is no answer. Existence is absurd. It was from this place that I approached a class this past fall, a class on Nietzsche and nihilism, or the belief in no intrinsic value. Through this class, I actually came to quite like the idea of an existence without God, pushing myself to smile in the face of all the freedom that comes of a life without God. Even if I'd accepted that the world may never be so orderly, I felt that I'd at least return to this one. But as a theology class made clear this past intercession, the question of whether or not atheism truly had brought me back to this world remained. It seemed that just as religion provided me with answers to my questions, so too did atheism. A negating answer is nonetheless an answer. That there is no answer or that existence is absurd is able to explain a sequence of events in the same way an appeal to God's plan can, both hinging on their diagnoses of our metaphysical existence and both dependent upon conclusions that come from a place far beyond our physical existence on earth. In other words, I came to realize that believing in no God is just as much a faith as believing in a God. Dr. Monhe's class, The Problems of God, revealed to me the problems of believing in no God. Atheism had landed me right back in the heavens, a place of faith, frowning down on the world below me, the world that I had yet to return to. This presented a conundrum of sorts. If I don't deny the existence of God, does that mean I believe in God? To reinstate our metaphor of place, if I don't remain in Washington, where the heavens do not exist, shrouded as they are by the dense growth of the forest, does that mean I return to the desert, where all anyone can see is the sky above? Not necessarily, for somewhere in between, there exists Colorado, where the sky can be glimpsed between the trees overhead, but the horizon lingers out of sight from within the black forests. Though the heavens can inspire awe and wonder, they refrain from providing any kind of navigational compass for us here on Earth. This position is known as agnosticism, which maintains that it cannot be known whether or not God exists. This may seem like a cop-out of sorts. Am I really not going to take a stance on the issue at hand? Does God exist or does God not exist? 
I won't say, not because I don't have a desire to know the truth, but because I think that continuing to expect an answer to this question would be missing the point. The fact remains that, regardless of how much I wish to know, the truth of the matter is beyond us. So why would I even pretend to have an answer to it? Instead of clinging to the certainty of an answer, I learned to sit comfortably with the uncertainty of a question. When I think back on what drove me to religion, to atheism, in the first place, it was the seeking of answers. Answers that I was adamant were out there. But if I consider what I could have avoided had I not been so certain of anything, had I been content to let my questions linger, I would never have surrendered what my home had instilled in me. Not just my home in Colorado, but my home on this earth. Life on this planet is a fascinating thing. We are thrown into existence without any kind of choice in the matter. As such, we are bound to ask questions like, am I here for a reason? We are bound to ask questions that do not get answers. We are all born to wander, to love getting lost. The same disposition that my childhood in the black forest had inspired in me. Gary, Paul, and the Bond on a trip to the Grand Canyon realized how much time adults spend scanning the landscape for picturesque panoramas and scenic overlooks while the kids were on their hands and knees, engaged with what was immediately before them. When I was a child running through the backwoods of Colorado, I didn't care about the questions that weren't available to me. I was preoccupied with navigating the forest that was present to me. I was, quote, engaged with what was immediately before me. The world around me, the people around me filled me with such wonder that I didn't have a need to wonder at the existence of God. And this, I conjecture, is what made that blue sky of Colorado so special. As close to the heavens as I was, I was still so far away. There was a distance between what was out there and what was here, and I didn't have any kind of a desire to close the distance between. Rebecca Solnit writes, the color of that distance is the color of an emotion, the color of there seen from here, the color of where you are not, and the color of where you can never go. For the blue is not in the place those miles away at the horizon, but in the atmospheric distance between you and the horizon. Heaven is not so learned because it's a land where promises come true, but because the certainty it provides is so far from us. This is to say that uncertainty colors our own existence. The distance between a question and its answer is what makes the space in between so beautiful. I've come to embrace this expanse, respecting the distance between here and there. And through my welcoming of our experience on Earth, I've seen color flow back into my world. I've caught a glimmer of that same blue that you'll never find mile high.